Well, I think you're going to really like this week's episode of Behind the Mic, and I'm not just saying this. Uh, it's great to have somebody who is so respected in the business of broadcasting and started in theater. Susan Waldman grew up in Newton, Mass., went to Newton South. I grew up in Ashland, Mass., which is not far from Newton at all. She went to Simmons College, performed on Broadway, and of course had a passion for baseball, had a passion for performing. But this is terrific stuff on so many levels as we talk about the business of broadcasting, women in broadcasting, some of the stories she shares. Just the stories, uh, I think, for young broadcasters listening, not just women, but men, and, and what it's like to work in this field. Uh, we dive into Yankee history. Of course, we talk about George Steinbrenner, John Sterling, and so many great stories because Susan is split. I mean, her life is still uh, Red Sox deep. You can tell that. She's still a Red Sox fan. And the memories and the stories that she can recall just off the top of her head. And I didn't prep her on, on any of this. I asked her a few things before that we could go over. But a lot of this is just right off the top of her head. And I think that's what's special about baseball people. And this is something that I did talk to her about. But I do want to share this before we go on. Baseball is special on so many levels. And I was thinking about this the other day. It's not just the players Baseball reverts to our childhood. It really does. I think about my youth. I think about going to Fenway Park. And it's not just, again, the players. But for me, it was the whole experience. It was my dad asking me, dude, I want to go. It's getting in the car. It was the drive on Route 9, going to Fenway, seeing the sicko sign, listening to Eddie Andelman, a sports talk show host, talk about the game that night. We're listening to sports talk on the way in. Finding a parking spot, maybe getting tickets for that game, the vendors, getting a program, walking up the ramp, seeing the green monster, seeing the lights, seeing the players, getting autographs, watching the game, eating, leaving the game, listening to the post-game show, hearing the highlights. I, I thought it was so cool to hear the highlights of the game I just watched, the drive home. The excitement, getting home, can't sleep because I'm still jacked up. The whole experience of the game is why we love it. It's not just, for me, the favorite players. Red Sox fans, Yankee fans are unique. They have a similar bond, passion. You're going to love this interview. All right, Susan, uh, how weird is it to be back home? Well, I guess weird is as nice a word as you can use. It's it's pretty, uh, you know, it's pretty scary, actually. It's pretty uh, terrifying here in New York. And, um, you know, I haven't been out and um, won't go out. I went to the store once on senior hours at 6 o'clock in the morning. And it's, it's kind of scary in New York. And um, I wish it were just weird, but it's really terrifying, actually. You know, you go from being uh, wondering if you're ever going to broadcast another game to, um, are you going to get sick? Are you, you going to make it through this? And it's um, it's a tough time, very tough time. It's good to be able to talk about something besides this. Yeah, there's certain levels of it, yeah, I, I certainly understand. And then um, you, you get to the point where the baseball gets secondary, doesn't it? It's more than secondary, and you know you're very young, so I don't, I don't, you know, you don't. When you're told that uh, if you go out, you've got, a, you've got a chance of getting this thing and dying, it's a little just because of your age. Um, you know, I didn't know I was elderly till this happened. I had no idea that, that you know that if you're over sixty, you're elderly and are going to die if you get this. So it's, it's a whole other thing. I can't really. 
um, take the baseball part of it really seriously. I mean, I love baseball. I was at Fenway Park when I was three a long time ago. I could literally reach out and touch Ted Williams. So um, I love baseball, but it, it really seems a little silly when, you know, every time the phone rings, somebody else is really sick or worse. So yeah. um, baseball will come back in what form, I'm not sure. Yeah, I agree with you. I have two nieces, so, I mean, I think of them, and my parents are older, so those are the things I, I think of. But it's nice talking to a Massachusetts native up from Ashland. I'm in Grafton right now, and I know you grew up in Newton, so the Mass people, we stick together. Uh, absolutely, and, you know, there's a lot of us around at <laughs> at, at my station, WFAN. It's, we're everywhere. Um, you know, Ed Coleman, who covers the Mets and has done Mets uh, games, he's from Boston also, and uh, a lot of the writers in New York are all from Boston, and, you know, whenever we're working the same games, we usually will talk about um, the Patriots or <laughs> what, what it was like when we were kids going to Fenway. The Patriots is something we all talk about because none of us cover football, so you can sort of keep your Boston roots if you're dealing with a sport that you're not covering and not a journalist at. So every time I see all the guys from, from Boston, we're always talking about the Patriots. It's remarkable con- considering, I'm, I mean, I grew up in the 90s where they were, I can remember some of the quarterbacks, but it, it's just <laughs> you're blindsided about what happened. You know, Belichick takes the job and then, yeah, I thought when Parcells took it, that was going to take it to another level, which it did. But I mean, when Belichick took over and Kraft, I mean, it was unbelievable. It, it really was, and of course, you didn't you didn't have the great pleasure of being there when it all started in the sixties, uh, when the when the Patriots were awful, and finally, and Babe Perilli was the quarterback, and Babe and Gino, I remember that, and I can name you those teams: Larry Eisenhower and and. Uh, uh, Bill Ankitis and all those people that were part of those things. I can still remember Jim Plunkett mm. when he was uh, a, a Patriot lying on his back for an entire year, and then he was so shaken up by not being able to perform as a Patriot because people were tackling him all over the place that it took a year off before he became Jim Plunkett of, of Oakland. So yeah. uh, you came in at a really good time, and, and anybody who knows Bill Parcells, and he's one of my oldest and dearest friends, you knew that he was going to take over and he was going to do something something uh, very, very special, and he did that, and all of this is coming out. That first group of Super Bowls, I don't care who the coach was. They were all Parcells draft picks, and it all started from there, and then, of course, uh, Belichick is just <laughs> unbelievable. So you've gotten the great uh, you've gotten the great 20 years. Some yeah. of us were around for the first 40, but it wasn't so good. It wasn't so good. Yeah, I'm actually in my 40s, so I do remember a little, not not quite the Fenway Park years, which I, my dad is oh, talking about. Nobody had a good seat in, that, <laughs> in those games. Yeah. I remember being at, let's see, first we were at Nickerson Field, and Fenway Park, Harvard Stadium. Harvard Stadium wasn't bad. Um, Fenway Park was hideous. You couldn't see anything. I was always behind a pole, and the, the field went the wrong way, and it was always snowing. That's my memories. And I was actually at BC when the stands got on fire. So I remember, mm. I remember all those things before, uh, before Mr. Sullivan put up that awful Schaefer Stadium. Yeah. I mean, they told him they were going to take the team away. If you remember, yeah. if they didn't get a, if he didn't build a stadium, so he built that stadium as fast as he possibly could, and no roads. That one road going in and one road going out. And I remember my uncle Bob. We'd go to games with him, and he would leave in the third quarter because he just wanted to get stuck on Route 1. And it didn't matter what the score was, didn't matter. Third quarter, we were out of there. 
Yeah, I mean everything was bad. They didn't they call it an erector set. I mean that was a that was a terrible place. <laughs> well, he was. They were going to. The league was going to take the team away from him, if yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah. If he didn't get his own stadium, which he did. So, but at better times. Yeah. And you know the whole thing that's happened here, and I, I wish everyone. You know, it was time. I hope Tom Brady is very happy. I hope he's successful. Um, I really do. And, you know, it's time to retool. You know, you can't, everybody gets older. Everybody has to change. And I am fascinated to see um, what, who Belichick is going to make into his next quarterback, because I think that's what um, we're all looking for, how he's going to do this. I think it's going to be very exciting. Yeah, and I think to see what happens here. Yeah, I think the league loves it too, but I agree with you. I mean, let him do what he wants. I mean, and there's, the league is a cap. I mean, there's financial parts of it, but I mean, the run is is historic. So so be it. Let him have his last two years and do what he wants. Right, absolutely. And I don't know that you know how much money you need in this world. I'm not yeah. sure that it's that. I think it, it's time. Sometimes things just run their course. Yeah. Um, Bill Parcells always said, you know, after ten years, people stop listening. That's why managers and coach. That's why Belichick is it's so amazing because that he's still there because it doesn't happen that way because they tune you out after a while yep. and i think it's just it's just time it's just time to get a new group in there and build a different kind of football team and it's going to be fun you have you've had a fascinating career i mean you you began in the theater and, and performing which i love i mean I, I love actors and hollywood and all that so that's such a cool part of of your resume and something that you you still do and, and are are really good at it and i saw a good clip of you singing at fenway in 1986 yeah, that game seven of the yep. ALCS, absolutely. Yep. I also sang opening day that year because I've got a picture of it on my wall. It was against uh, Kansas City. Um, no, that when I was in theater, how I used to go to ball games, and and obviously, you know, growing up where I did and at my age, you know, you don't grow up and think, boy, I'm going to be a sports broadcaster. There was no such thing. Mm. That was a, a girl. I loved baseball. I loved sports. I went to, you know, my grandfather had me my own season ticket when I was three at Fenway. Um, I loved the Celtics. I loved all of it. And we went all the time. But it was like an avocation. It was never going to be a vocation. I could always sing. So I always did. And I was always going to go to New York and, and be on Broadway. And I kept baseball in my life because when you're on the road, uh, you're in cities. And how I would go to ball games for nothing was to call up and say, hi, this is Susan Waldman. And I'm starring Amanda La Mancha here. Uh, would you need an anthem singer for Saturday afternoon? Because I didn't do matinees. And uh, back then, in the 70s, nobody had figured out it was a way to get on television. I just wanted to go to the ballgames. And so that's how I started doing that. And I I must have sung the National Anthem um, a thousand times. Um, And in a couple of World Series, we were in Pittsburgh in 79 when uh, Pittsburgh and Baltimore played. And I sang um, in the NLCS in those games and then in the World Series in 79. And then 86, you know, I was still in theater. This was, so I would come and I was friends with, I've known everybody in that Red Sox organization since I was a child, so back then. And I'd say, I'm going to come, come and sing, okay? Oh, yeah, fine. And I would do that, and it was, you know, a way for me to go to ball games. That's, that's fantastic. That's a great story. It, isn't it remarkable how much baseball, though, influences us, uh, especially the Red Sox? I mean, you can go, both of us could go right back to, when we were kids going there, the smells, the sights, the, the, the uh-huh. whole experience to me, the driving there, the leaving, everything was just, I thought it was the best thing on the planet. Still is to this day. Yeah. 
I, I, I agree with you. And just think back when I was growing up, it was a tiny little place. Don't forget, none of, the, none of that stuff was there. And no, no monster seats and no stuff out in right field. It was, it was one level. They had those little sky boxes, but, you know, but that's, that's it. And you really knew everybody in the park because mm. until 1967, nobody came to those games. You know, don't let them fool you. The Red yeah. Sox nation was never there. Um, and that's, and that's what made it more perfect. I can still, uh, remember. I was, a, I was probably three or four, and walking, taking my grandfather's hand and walking up that stairway. Uh, there's the entrance that is right near uh, where the Red Sox clubhouse door is now. And that entrance is where we would go in. It was so dark under there, and they didn't have the great lighting that they have now. And you walked out into the sunshine, and there was a little girl. And I remember looking at the green and the green monster, and it was like I walked into a green velvet uh, jewelry box. Yeah. I just never forgot it. And the whole feeling and every time still to this day, not the team so much, but every time I'm there, I make sure that I walk up that little tunnel and, mm. you know, make that trek that I did with my grandfather all those years ago. And it really, and sometimes I get there really early and I'll sit there by myself and look around and it's, it's something it's, um, I've said, I did a, um, when we were in Tampa this year, before we went home, the last thing I did was the Yankees, Red Sox, Revival uh, reunion, rivalry reunion, and on the Yankee side it was uh, Mickey Rivers, um, Bucky Dent, Greg Nettles, and Goose Gossage, and on the Red Sox side uh, was Wade Boggs, Louis Tiant, um, Bill Lee, and Bernie Carbo, and they were telling stories, and you know I'm old enough to remember all of it. So yeah. you know you'd go on and on and on. And it's something that you never forget. And Louis Tion said, how did this happen, girl? How did you get to be, you know, a, a Yankee person? I said, I'm not a Yankee person. I said, everything I am is because I grew up in that park. Yeah. And then you take it to other places. But um, it's just, a, it's an amazing place. It stays with you forever, no matter what you do. And you know what? I am sure that, um, you know, kids that grew up at Yankee Stadium, I talked to my friend Michael Kay in the Yes Network all the time, he has the same stories growing up in the Bronx yeah. and what it was like to walk in for the first time and see Bobby Mercer, that was his favorite player, and just see him from out there in the bleachers and, and walk in. And Yeah, it, it's everywhere. Baseball is a, is a special one. It's different from any other sport in the world, and that's why people miss it so much. I don't think they'd be making so much of a fuss if it were football season or yeah. basketball season. I mean, But baseball is the heart of America. It's funny, I, I hear this all the time from people that oh, baseball's in trouble and all this, and I just say, based on what? And then we see the outpouring of support now. I mean, it, people are going crazy for it. So I understand that things might be down once in a while, but compared to when I was younger, I mean, they're making way more money, way more people are going, there's more access to it than there ever has been. Right, there is, and, and some some of that's good, some of it's not. Yes. Um, you know, there's there are there are things I think instead of trying to change the rules to make the game faster, <laughs> there are ways you could do it without. How about going back to what? Look at some, take out some old films sometime, and look at um, games from the '60s. Nobody stepped stepped out of the box. Nobody did the uh, Nomar Garcia Parra thing with the gloves. Nobody yeah. walked around the mound. They got in there and they hit the ball and they ran. And, and games, when I was a little girl at, at Fenway Park, there were double headers on Sunday. I was home for dinner. Yeah. yeah. You know, you take the streetcar into, um, into Fenway and get off. And I'd go with my little brother and we'd turn around after <laughs> two games. 
and they were four hours for the two of them and went home and then we were home for Sunday dinner. So it's very different. So then you end up your career again on WFAN, the premiere of it. So how does that all work where you transition into radio? Well, it all kind of came to a, a head in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, the music that I came to New York to do, the Broadway shows, they're gone. They're not coming back. It's a different kind of music, a different kind of show. And I still had all my feeling about baseball. And one of my best friends in the world, actually, we did a couple of projects together with Ken Coleman, who was, um, you know, obviously the voice of the Red Sox for many, many years and should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, But Kenny and I were really good friends, and I would still go as a fan down to spring training in Winter Haven, and I was the first female to go to a fantasy camp. And one day Kenny said to me, he said, you know, I got got this friend. um, He used to do something called Enterprise Radio, and now he's starting a thing. I think they're going to call it The Fan or something. This is 86 that he's telling me this conversation. And he said, I told him he had to meet you because they're going to need a woman. You just can't have all guys. And uh, it's illegal in New York. And you have to have a a woman. And I told him he's got to meet you. And I said, okay, to do what? And he said, well, to go on and talk sports, you can talk to anybody. You just talk about anything. And I said, okay. And so I called him and he said, make a tape. And so I made a tape. It was a little cassette tape tape and I brought it down and he hired me and I was the um the first woman first voice on the air never mind the first woman the first voice of the air and what I didn't realize Mike was that um when my voice hit the airwaves I had no idea that half of the country um don't want women around in sports at all Hmm. at all I mean I went through that first year um, I sat and, for example, I did everything that nobody else wanted to do. And I took extra jobs and they kept trying to fire me. And it was just an awful, awful time. And I was getting all kinds of hate mail. I would get um, used condoms in the mail. I would get feces in the mail. I'd get uh, mm. awful things that you can't even imagine. One, because I was female. And two, because I probably had a Boston accent. But it was, it was a, a terrifying time. And then to me, it actually became something else. It was... What do you mean I can't do this? Of course I can do this. I know more than you. I don't care if you're male. I grew up in this. I know everything, and I know these people. And um, so you just try and do something that other people weren't doing with sports. And I thought there was plenty of room for somebody uh, to be emotional about sports because everybody who watches baseball, you don't think Red Sox fans are emotional about their team? You ever been in a Yankee game when they lose? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's... it's an emotional thing. It's not all stats, and it's not just statistics and who did what. It, it is not. It's human beings who fail and succeed, and why do they fail, and why do they succeed? And I thought I could do that better than anybody, and that's what I pretty much made a career on. And you considered a pioneer to me because you've really influenced some uh, colleagues that we we both know, including Emma mm-hmm. Tiedemann, my replacement in Portland, so... I know yep. she thinks highly of you, and that has to be nice that now that things have changed, that you can help and, and uh, really guidance to other people. Right, and you know what? And it's so important because it was never like that, and I've waited a long time. This is going to be my 34th year with the Yankees. And um, so these women that are out there now, and there's a bunch of them um, that are out in minor leagues, and uh, a woman named Melanie Newman's going to do some radio for the Orioles yes. and do yep. pre and post on, on Masson. Um, so these girls weren't even born when I started. And 
And it took a couple of generations, but now they're doing it the right way. And as some an ex football player once said to me um, when I was on doing the first national game done by a woman doing play-by-play in baseball in 94. And he said, you know, I I don't like women doing sports, but I was watching you with my 10-year-old daughter. And I looked at her face and I thought to myself, she's never going to know that she can't do this because there you are. Yeah, that's great. And that lasts forever, right? That, that, it does. I, I can tell you that story, and it's it happened in 1994, and that's a very long time ago. But it, it's great because there's I've, this is my 16th year on the radio with John Sterling, and there's still just me in the booth. I mean, I know Jessica Mendoza does stuff for ESPN, but that's what once a week and yeah. not a team. I'm still the only I'm still the only woman who has a full time job with Major League Baseball in a booth, and you know I'm I'm, I'm waiting for these women to get going. <laughs> I can't stay there forever. Now, how did the Yankees thing come about? Um, well, we're in New York, and and when FAN was a New York sports team, I mean a, a sports station, and I didn't just do the Yankees. I did um, that first year. I was the one who I was doing updates, and I wasn't very good at it. And they moved me to the overnights, thinking I was going to quit, and I didn't. And I said, um, you know what? We've got all these people from the Daily News and uh, Newsday, et cetera, giving reports in the morning. They're not going to tell you news. They're going to tell you what, you know, what they didn't put in the paper. And so I said, give me a tape recorder and let me go to games and let me talk to players and let me do little um, vignettes, I called them. They weren't. Now they're, you know, obviously little updates and things that from, from different stadiums. I started that. And I went there and I talked to people and I went to every home team's games and then would come in and do um, the overnights. So I did Met home games. I did Yankee home games for a while. I did um, basketball. I did, but how I got the teams I got, nobody wanted to go to the Yankees because the other team in town had just won the World Series. Yeah. I didn't want to be at Shea Stadium. The last place I wanted to be, most miserable night of my night of my life, October 25th, 1986. Um, I didn't want to go, okay, I'll do the Yankees. I got the Yankees because the guys wanted to go to Shea. Um, I got the Knicks because <laughs> they were hiring some kid, I don't know, I don't know, named <laughs> Patino or something. Nobody knew him. The, the uh, Knicks had won 24 games the year before, and I said, I know him. I remember him when he was at Boston University and had the kids running up and down the court with bricks in their hands because he didn't think they were in shape. I'll go. Yeah. And that's and that's what that's how it happened. And I did all the I did all three hockey teams because people didn't want to go to New Jersey to do the Devils. Uh, a lot of people want to do the Rangers, but I did every Devils home game. And that year. The Devils got in the playoffs, and they were they were um, eliminated by the Bruins. But I got to go to the playoffs because no one else knew the team, because no one wanted to drive to Jersey. It's amazing the opportunities. No one wants to do this, so I'll do it. Well, but that's that's what you have to do. Yes, um, yeah. when you're female or any and anybody, yeah. you yeah. T- you make yourself indispensable. And I've always said this to to anybody who listen. I'll do it. Whatever. I'll, I'll do there. I'll go there. It's okay. Because you can't just because do eventually, it. Because yeah. eventually, you might be the only person who knows the Devils yeah. when they're playing the Bruins. And of course, I knew the Bruins. But that, but it, it's funny how that works. Yeah. You know, if you look at it, and then of course the Yankee thing also came because um, 
the owner of the team happened to think it was fascinating that a woman wanted to do this. So, <laughs> um, you know, when the, when the owner of the ball team is in your corner, it's kind of hard to fail. Yeah, that's – you know what? I like what you do, and um, I like the broadcast because you're reporting on the game as well. So it's not you're just doing the color commentary, but – your reporter, the interviews you guys do, it's different. And if you can't tune in a lot to the games, I can put it on and then I can get immediate feel of how the team is doing or what's going on. So it's, it's kind of a neat blend and a neat take on, on a broadcast. Well, you know, it's funny. I'm glad you said that because uh, growing up in my first team that I ever heard when I was a tiny little girl was uh, Kurt Gowdy and Bob Murphy. Way back. And I remember saying to myself, I knew as soon as I turned on the game, by Kurt's voice, whether the Red Sox were winning or losing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the Red Sox, and I knew when Ken Coleman took over and Ned Martin, I didn't have to hear the score. And I just learned that. And that's how we are. Also, I'm very well aware that I'm not a player. And I, and if I can report on, I mean, I would never say, well, I mean, Robbie Cano should do this with his legs and you know if i can report and say you know robbie told me that he was working on his lower half and this is what he tries to do so i i know i'm not a player and i would never analyze (laughs) as if i were because it sounds silly but if i can report on it because i can you know it's not we're not transplanting a kidney here we're talking about baseball so but if you can make it seem like you know robbie told me this and they usually do what are you working on? Why did you swing at that pitch? And you can get into what he's thinking and what he's looking for. And, you know, and then with the younger kids now, it's even easier because there's so much uh, information that they have. They learn instead of just trying and failing, they can actually see what they're doing wrong. So they can actually describe it to you in detail, which makes it even easier. And that's what being a reporter does. Yeah. I mean, I think it's much more interesting to find out what, you know, what they're trying to do than what I think he's trying to do. And I think that I think a lot of announcers should actually take that approach. I completely agree. I mean, I sometimes will ask coaches or things I say, was that right? Because I don't want to be wrong because, you know, people won't always tell you. I mean, you want to sound like you, you're doing your job right. I, that's great right. advice that you're giving to, to people who are listening to this. Right. Well, if you're a female, they'll always tell you. And if I make a mistake, it gets in the paper. Yeah. So um, that's that's the difference between. I used to have a, a joke when Mike Francesa was uh, on still on the air on FAN. I'd, I'd do a five oh five spot with him, and um, I always had said, you know, if 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 Mike Francesa says on the air, uh, George Steinbrenner, um, the owner of the Mets, people will go, oh, he made a mistake. If Susan Waldman says George Steinbrenner, the owner of the Mets, see, she's a stupid woman. She it <laughs> ends up on Twitter now, right? Everybody's tweeting about you. I'm not a I'm not a Twitter person. I, I noticed so it. I don't, yeah. I actually I have a phony account, so I can actually <laughs> see what people are saying. Um, I like to follow. I during the season I will follow um, that the person that I think is the best reporter for whatever team for the teams, just mm-hmm. so I know what's going on. It's a good idea. In case someone gets traded or, you know, coach gets fired. That I want to do. I think Twitter is very good for that. I, I don't really care about people's opinions. Yeah, I, I know. After I mean, I'm on it a lot because of the job I do and all that. But, yeah, it, there's a fatigue to it. I, I watched you with Dave Wills the other day, that podcast, and I liked something you said, how we all feel insecure about what we're doing. You know, I, not, we, I think all us broadcasters go through this. We never know – 
there's no manual to this, and we don't know if what we're doing is right. And I like that you said that because it, it made me feel better because I think I go through that, and I think a lot of people go through that. Well, I think everybody does. And, yeah. and, and don't forget, when you're broadcasting baseball or any sport, you're out there without a net. Yes. Anything could happen at any time, and that's part of the beauty of it is that's what keeps it alive. Somebody always said to me, somebody has said to me many times, um, you know, different cities, well, doesn't it get boring doing, you know, isn't it a grind? I said, no, it's a new day every day. There's a different person out there. You know, it's, it's either rainy or it's sunny. It's different fans. Um, it's like doing a, a show for years and years, except you don't know the ending in baseball. You know, in the show, there's a script. Yes. <laughs> you have to make it real for yourself. Baseball, it's easy. I mean, because there's different people, and, and human beings are, 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 if you're a performer, and I always, I believe that theater people and athletes are very similar, different stage, same person, different stage. Uh, anyone can sing, not anyone can be on Broadway. Anyone can play baseball, not everyone can make a living at it. The yeah. same thing that puts a bat in um, Mookie Betts's hand is the same thing that, you know, makes me stand and sing the national anthem in front of whatever, 50 million people in the World Series. It's the same performing. And I think that broadcasters are performers. And if you are a performer, you are by you are by nature insecure or you wouldn't think you could stand up in front of 50 million people and broadcast a game yeah. or whatever it is, you know, at any level. Yep. I agree with you too about I could I always I am so taken back when I go if I go to a play how they have done so many shows in a row and it's the same thing but we have different pitching rotations you have like you said there's so many different players a rookie gets called up Aaron Judge makes his big league debut and you can see anything on any day right 20 runs Right absolutely yeah. and do Yeah yeah And and theater you have to find it for yourself the audience is different um, somebody doesn't feel well, but I'll tell you, there were times when I, I did a show called Man of La Mancha for years. I bought my house with Man of La Mancha. I did it for years. <laughs> and, um, wherever we were, there would be some nights I, I'm telling you right now, I would find myself, did I do that scene? And we'd be like halfway through the first act and I wouldn't remember doing it. Wow. And, and sometimes that happens. And um, sometimes, you know, you'll, you'll see, you go to a game or you'll have a game and somebody will say, remember when you said, said, boy, do I not remember anything about that game. Yeah. And I remember just about everything. I can take you through the fifth inning of the 1967 um, last game of the year with Longboard laying down the butt. I mean, it's, but sometimes you just, it just passes you by because there's a lot of it. But you have to find that one thing that, that brings you back. Yeah, that's no, great. That's great stuff. I, uh, I'm saving some of the good stuff here near the end. Uh, I love John <laughs> Sterling because what I hear from him is it's a, it's a fan. It's a boy. His passion comes through. And I just – he doesn't make it about him, even though he has those catchphrases and I love. But you can hear – his joy and his love for what he does in the Yankees every night. And I'm sure you obviously hear it sitting next to him. You know, obviously. I mean, he's, he's unique. There is there's <laughs> no doubt. No, John in a slip phone, yeah, um, and no computer. Uh, John has, you know, I, I think because of his, um, you know, his, he has some some oddities about him, and I everybody say that, but he, at his core, has a, a photographic memory and remembers things about players and remembers times. And uh, I'd say, who is this kid? 
And he said, oh, little lefty switch, you know, little lefty would play with blah, 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 Corpus Christi and all the way up. I don't know how he does it. Yeah. But they're, the thing that makes John is unique and a lot of the guys who are gone are the older, the guys who were, were that age who are no, no longer broadcasting are gone were like that. The emotion and the joy and just the, the, the um, passion that comes through him every inning, every pitch of every inning. And the only time I, and I've never heard him, he did, uh, he was ill in the middle of last year and you know, it was a little less energetic, but the passion was still there. And that's something, boy, we should all have that kind of passion when, you know, we're, when we're in our 80s. It really yeah. is something to me that, he's, that he does that year Th- after year. Those are my day. role models. I, I just think I grew up, uh, my grandparents had cable before my parents, and I was exposed to Harry Carey, Ralph Kiner, Phil Rizzuto. Uh, and I just, those guys to me, Ken Coleman, John, I just, there's something about that. I think that it's charisma and it's fun to listen it's also, to. It's, it's not cookie cutter yeah. broadcasters. I, yeah. I think now with the way um, teams are and corporations owning everything and, and the big, they want, they don't want the announcers to be the stars. Yes. And that's, you know, that actually is what happened on Broadway. Yeah, because I didn't when that. a star left a show, I mean, it used to be you'd go see what South Pacific Mary Martin. Hmm. When Mary Martin left the show, the the sales went down. So they have found out that you know we can do Phantom of the Opera forever. I have no idea who's Phantom of the Opera, you know, who's in it now. As long yeah. as they can sing and don't fall off the stage, it's going to it's going to um, run forever because the show is the star, the music is the star, not the people yeah. that are in it. Surprise! And, it's about money, huh? <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> indeed. But it's also, you know, there are, you can, um, the game is the thing, and a, a lot of the way people think about it now is that the game is the thing, so it doesn't matter who announces. I don't agree with that. I, agree. I know to whom yeah. I'm speaking. I know I am doing Yankee games for Yankee fans. I know who's out there. I'm not in Kansas City. Yep. And I think some of the biggest innings that we've had, uh, we do once a year, uh, once when we're in Boston and once when they're here. John and I will switch booths, and I'll do an inning with Joe Kostig, and, and whoever is with Joe will come over and work with John, and then we'll switch. So what you notice is that the New York fans and the Boston fans, we're all the same people, yes. just a different accent. I love it. And some of the, the great things are that you can hear, you know, people who've never heard John Sterling in Boston, like my family is thrilled with this, you know, to hear John. I mean, it's great. And, you know, for me to be on in Boston, you know, with Joe Castiglione, whom I've known, I knew him when I was in theater, I've known yeah. him forever. And we've had great times and, and those kinds of things with the same kind of broadcaster. Joe Castig's got it too. He just loves everything about it. Yeah. I mean, he would do this every day if he could yeah he's such a sweet man i love him i I don't i we were when you guys did that last year we were either the minor league season was over or we had an off day because i listened to that i made sure i turned on my ipad to to hear that i i love that you guys do that the switch yeah well when joe and i get going i mean we're going back to bobby sprawl and you know (laughs) the game is going on and and joe and i are talking about you know 1970 and it's you know, it's it's great to do that because uh, the people that are our age, they're still out there. They're still, those are the Red Sox fans. They've yep. been there. You know, Red Sox Nation is a, is a new phenomenon. 
You know, but one of the things that my grandfather, um, before he, he died in 1979, and I remember him saying to me that year, now, if we ever win, you have to promise me that you will buy a bottle of champagne and you will, you will drink it for me. Hmm. And that's 1979. Wow. <laughs> and that was, and I did that, and I have a, I have a lot of friends in ownership, and, and it was really something that first year in 2004. That was really something. Because there are people out there who, you know, no matter what, it was just always tragic. Year after year oh, after yeah. year, awful things. I mean, things you wouldn't think of. Louis Aparicio falling down, running, of all people, rounding third base. Why would he fall down? I would fall down, but not Louis. Yeah. Just, yeah, there, there were Hollywood fails. I mean, they were like oh, movies. Yeah. Oh, awful. Yeah. Awful. I mean, just, <laughs> I didn't talk to Joe Morgan for years. And, <laughs> and it, 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 he was doing ESPN, and I'd go in to talk to John Miller, and I would never talk to him. And my brother, the year that Joe Morgan retired, said, what is Joe Morgan like? And I said, I've never talked to him. I, I'm not going to talk to him. Yeah. He said, why not? And then he said, oh, for Pete's sake. Susan, it's been 37 years. Get over it. <laughs> so I went into that. They were there that Sunday, and I went in, and I told Joe Borg of the story. And he started laughing, and he's a lovely man, and he put it on the air. <laughs> and it was, we were playing Oakland. I'll never forget it. And he told that story. But um, all I can see is that little slap hit, yeah. 75. That was painful. Not as painful as 86, but that was oh. pretty painful. Yeah, but you know what? I to, I still so I was thirteen in eighty six. I still love that team more than any team because that was the first for me to see it. Like they were awful. My first, I started getting into baseball. I think I was eight or nine, and that was oh my god. They they went from fifth to first. But um, yeah, that was. You know what's remarkable, Susan, is that in game one, you remember that the Red Sox won on a ball that was hit between Tim Tuffle's legs. Who would have thought? Right, I do. I mean, <laughs> foreshadowing, right? Well, I guess you can look at that. My uh, nephew, <laughs> my nephew, who's now a lot older than that, was three at the time, and said after that, Auntie Susan had hit a stone. Mm. <laughs> so that was, it wasn't his fault, it hit a stone. Yeah. Uh, that was, yeah. Well. So I, I love the thing you told me about Pawtucket, that you, the Rigetti fidrich game, which is, is one of the, the famous games there that you sang the anthem for. I did. I did. I, I used to go up there um, every so often. I probably did it three or four times. I can't remember who the GM was. I think his name was Mike something. Um, but I I loved Ben Maunder. I just loved that man. And I loved going to that little park um, with the, the field. I, I don't know if it's still – well, now it's not going to be there. But um, the field, the little league field in the background where little kids could come during the game and watch – the people, uh, there was a pizza parlor that I remember going to, and I just thought the place was magical. Everybody, it was magical. And um, there was a great story. One of the times I was up there, I was walking with Mr. Mondor, and we were going, and, and he saw two little kids climbing over the fence to get in. Hmm. And, um, and he got them by the scruff of the neck, and he said, what are you doing? And the guy said, I'm sorry, Mr. Mondor, I wanted to, wanted to see the game. And Ben took out two tickets and gave them to the kids. And he said, now you go outside and you walk in through that door like a gentleman. Wow. That's great. I, I just, what a wonderful man he was. Just a wonderful, perfect owner for yeah. a, a minor league ball team. Because everything around there I thought was perfect. 
Do you remember that game at all? I mean, it's pretty remarkable because those were two rookies of the year pitching in the minor leagues. And, of course, Fidrich and Rigetti and big names. Well, but Fidrich had been injured. Yes. And he was getting – and Rigetti it was one of George's fits where he sent him down with his old pitching coach. So who knows what that was all about. Um, but, no, I don't. I mean, I, you know, it didn't become – you know, it was it was cool because now I I think didn't they put pictures of them up over the door? Yeah. At some point, yeah, it was kind of remarkable. But there were reasons why the two of them were there, and because yeah. Rigetti went up and down a few times. Every time, uh, you know, George got mad at him, they, he would send him down with Sammy Ellis, and he'd have to pitch his way back. Uh, Fidrich, I believe, was injured and coming back from something. Um, but I do remember all those. All those people over the years, you'd see, you know, Boggs was there and Stapleton was there and, you know, every, so many people that were part of, they're part of your lexicon, they all played at Pawtucket. That was the, the great thing. That was the great thing about that. You could get down and you really could see the Red Sox teams of the future because they were all there. All right, George, I love, see, we know exactly, it's not Costanza we're talking about. Um, you know, it's funny, uh, before I bring up George Steinbrenner, Dave Rigetti, th- I remember watching the no-hitter he threw on George's birthday, I believe, the next right, season. I was there, yeah. So do you think he did that as a little extra? He must have really liked that, right? He sent me to the minors. Oh, George? Well, Rigetti must I, have I, loved throwing that. You know that. what? I don't think. Yeah. Um, Rigetti did that. Uh, let me tell you a story about Dave Rigetti about that. It didn't have anything to do with George. No, I know. Um, it was, but it was on his birthday, though, right? It was on yeah. his birthday. Um, yeah. Dave Rigetti was really upset that he wasn't on the All-Star uh, team. Because that was All Star. It was the weekend that was um, it was going to the All Star our break, and it was going to be his mother's birthday, and that was going to be his present to her. And then he wasn't picked. And I remember his good friend Ron Gidry even said he had an elbow injury, and they still didn't pick him. So I remember people were saying back uh, the friend of mine who I was sitting with, I was still in theaters, you know, early eighties, and and I remember I was sitting actually with John McNamara's daughters. And there was some discussion about how Rigetti was going to do something special because he's so angry that he wasn't on the All-Star team that he was going to do something for his mother. So this had nothing to do with George. I, I, George probably said something afterwards, but um, no, this was because of, of Rags' mom. Yeah. I, I thought that uh, in all these years that there could be a, a good miniseries on HBO or somewhere. George, uh, he's such a big figure. Whatever you think about him, Susan can say the same thing about what we've talked about a lot. His passion, whether you know he did some extreme things, but he really loved that team. Well, and and I, I had obviously a very special relationship with Mr. Steinbrenner, except for my mother and my grandfather. George Steinbrenner is probably the most important person in my life. Yeah, and um, he he put me. He had said to me way back, 1988, when he first met me, because I was I was spicy little thing, and I you know, I wouldn't take no for an for an answer, and I'd like walk i'd follow him down the corridor and i'd follow him he'd go in an elevator and i'd run up the ramp because you weren't allowed to get in a, um in an elevator if he was there and he he kind of liked that and he wanted to see what this was and i'll tell you a story of how this all all started um george used to take the beat writers uh out for christmas lunch wow. every year and i guess it was 88 something like that um he invited everybody and i wasn't invited and i called the pr guy and I said, why aren't I invited? And he said, well, one, you're a girl. And two, it's just guys. It's just, you know, beat writers. And I said, well, I'm a beat person. I'm there every day. I've broken more stories than they have. No, he's not going to do it. So 
I called the um, sales manager of WFAN, and I said, do me a favor. Find out how much my 505 spot sells for and how many people listen. Hmm. It was my Yankee report. And I got it, and it turned out that um, more people listened to me at 5.05 on the radio than read every single paper in the tri-state area. Wow. So I wrote a letter to George. Dear Mr. Steinbrenner, this is who I am, and this is why I am important. I put all the money numbers in and the people that listened, and I FedExed it down there. And I said, I'm going to be in Tampa next week, and I, I expect an, an, an interview. And um, when I got down to Tampa... Um, I didn't tell him I was going to a spa, but that's where I went. Um, he, that my phone was ringing, and it was his secretary, and said, Miss Waldman, Mr. Steinbrenner, uh, we'll see you at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. And by the way, I have Xeroxed a copy of that letter, and every woman in the building has that letter. And I walked in, and <laughs> George, George said, okay, now, Waldman, I don't like uh, women in sports. I don't like women cops. I don't like women in the Army. I don't like women firemen. I look. I like women who can look pretty and spend my money. And I said, okay, okay, I can do that. Now, about this pitching staff that you think you've got for next year. And he started laughing. And that's how this all started. Um, But he also had said to me um, before the year in 88, he said, Waltman, one of these days I'm going to make a statement about women in sports. You're it, and I hope you can take it. Mm. And, you know, that was before the death threats, and it was before a lot of the bad stuff really started to happen. But um, he was, he, um, he wanted to do something special with everything. And I think a lot of people don't, don't know that side of George. I still, to this day, get um, people come up to me, Miss Waldman, I don't know who to tell, but my dad was sent to college because of George, and I never got to thank him, and my dad never got to thank him, because he didn't want anybody to know what he did. Yeah, I heard story. I heard a story about how he helped Tony Fossus out with with some money. Well, this was. I, I'll tell you that story because yeah. this is a great story. Um, Tony came to me one day and he said, "I think George used to give a scholarship to an athlete once. I think it's Florida State, one of the Florida ones, for, to an athlete if he had really good grades, and as long as he had kept the grades up." George would pay the tuition, but he never told anybody. And so Tony came to me and said, I think George paid for my college. Can you find out? Wow. And I said, yeah, okay. And I went to George and I said, Tony Fossus thinks you paid for his school at Florida, whatever it is. And George said, well, I'm not going to talk about it. And I said, he just wants to say thank you. Let him say thank you. And he said to me, what is the highest form of charity, Waldman? And I said, Anonymity, George. George used to say it all the time. An- anonymity is the greatest form of charity. And then he say, "It's in your Bible, so remember that." And he started walking away. And I said, "He just wants to stay, say thank you." And he's standing outside. <laughs> so, so it, it was true. And um, Tony got to say thank you to George. So you're the ultimate peacemaker, right? Because is the Yogi story really Yogi, true? Yeah. yeah, that's well. Great. He just well because you know you had to know. You had to be. You had to know how to talk to George. I mean, if yeah. you back down from George, you know you're, that was the end. Yep. So, but he just wanted to say. I remember that he just wants to say thank you, and he's outside. <laughs> so he laughed, and he you know, he was un, he was very uncomfortable with it. He didn't like it. He didn't like to. He really believed that to be anonymous was the highest form of charity, and he didn't want people to know. He really didn't. 
you know, you know this from being in baseball. I mean, the the fan thing kind of wears out. Where I don't really hate the Yankees. I mean, I never really did. I think because my family was so over the top with it. But there's, like you said before, there's such a respect between the two. And boy, I think of some of the mythical characters there: Babe Ruth, Reggie Jackson, DiMaggio. It it's it gives me chills thinking of of the opponent like that. And and you've been part of that. Well, you know what's amazing, and it's very, very different now, because now these guys, they all have the same agent, yeah, they all go to yeah. the same training facilities. That group in the 70s, they did hate each other. Yes. They hated each other at A-ball, they hated each other at A, and they got to the majors and they still hate each other. The Munson fist stuff, that was real. Yeah. That was that was very, very different. I think the game is so different now. You'd never see guys working out together in the winter from other teams. No. That, that, I always say, I, when I, uh, and Bucky Dent, who is like the nicest human being you've ever met in your life, when I was introduced to Bucky Dent, I didn't know whether to shake his hand or punch him in the mouth. <laughs> I mean, it just, it really was those 70s teams, you really did hate them. Yeah. Um, but now, you, you know, how can you hate Mookie Betts? How can you hate Aaron Judge? Well, I was going to tell you with Aaron Judge, I used to see him outside in Trenton all the time, talking to kids for hours, and he's the yep. nicest guy, and... You're right. I mean, you can't hate a lot of those guys. They're they're just they're such great. And and now you it, see that more. It's a different world. It's yeah. a much more. There's is much less. I think emotion in it. Um, you know the stories that the guys were telling when I I you know, did this reunion rivalry thing. You you couldn't do that now. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's too much Facebook and Snapchat or Instagram or whatever. But you know, guys were were it was different back then. And I think now it's you know it's a little too corporate for my taste. It, if you ask me, I kind of liked it when <laughs> they really didn't like each other. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's, uh, you know, in the minors sometimes when we play a Yankees affiliate, I'll jazz it up, the big rivalry. But I, I notice even that our guys don't, they don't really care either because they're, they, well, they don't, they, they don't, don't know. know what that's like yeah. because they go from, you know, everybody really, they've all, um, They've all played on the same travel teams. And, you know, you talk to these guys now, particularly the ones that come from, you know, like um, California. They've all known each other since they were kids. Yeah. Because they now were weeded out really early of who's going to be the best athlete. Yeah. Yeah. So they all have known each other, you know, forever, forever. So it just makes it very different. You know, I was thinking when you were just saying the, the stuff about George, I've I've known Stump Merrill for a long time, and I know oh. he has a special relationship with George. So, I, and I know how he is. So, I can imagine the two of you had this similar potion and formula to get to to know George, because I know that Steinbrenner loved him, right? Uh, absolutely, Stump did. Was uh, he used to call him the best soldier? Stump would do you know anything, and yeah. he was is to. Um, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, training camp to uh, spring training every year he comes down. Uh, they bring back a lot of the old, the old timers. And Stump was very important. Stump, you know, when he, when he managed at Columbus, he had all those, you know, and the teams were awful back then. I mean, yeah. you don't get the number one pick in the draft because you're good. And that was the year, those were the years that, uh, you know, Brian Taylor was the first round pick and they were just terrible. Terrible teams and and um, to go and manage a team and he did and he knew it was bad but he did he was a good soldier and he um, he's really part of this and you know loved loved George and loved you know the way things were back then and I'm glad he's around I'm glad the guy the kids can get to meet a guy like Stump Merrill 
uh, during spring training and, you know, find out because there's nothing that these guys, like when John Zimmer was around all the time, oh, yeah. there's nothing these guys haven't seen. Nothing. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can go with all your stats and all your metrics and all that. It's been done before. They just called it something else. Yeah. All right. This is the last thing I have for you. Favorite okay. players. You, I'm sure Jeter and Rivera have got to be in there, right? Um, they're in there. My yeah. favorite Yankee is Don Mattingly. No, yeah. hands down. I don't blame you. Yeah. Um, yep. Um, different, different people for different times. Um, you know, I love Jeter. I love Mariano. I love that whole group. 96 was my favorite year. Uh, Bernie Williams is still a friend of mine. Um, you know, we've been doing <clears throat> during this, um, <laughs> coronavirus thing, we've been playing games from the nineties. And I've been doing half-hour interviews with, with guys, John and I, and everybody I've called has come on. I called CeCe, I called A-Rod, I called Swisher, I called um, David Robertson, Java's coming on next week. Um, back then, before it really got all this <laughs> stat stuff, this really was a, a great group, and so there were some terrific characters um, that, that uh, were in the Yankee organization. But John Mattingly, uh, to me, is the... Perfect Yankee, always was, always will be. Um, and maybe it was a time when I just started and, and he was the captain and it was very different. You know, you yeah. walk into a, a clubhouse and you're the only woman, it's tough to begin with. But when he's the captain and there's Rigetti and there's Guidry and, you know, I, I know a lot of these guys. Of course, Willie Randolph is right up there too. So a um, lot, of, lot of people. And not just, the, the Yankees did not start with Derek Jeter. He's wonderful and I love him and and all of that, but there were some wonderful people that came through those doors before that group. Well, that was fantastic. I really enjoy talking with Susan Waldman, one of the voices of the Yankees, along with John Sterling. We could have gone on and on. We could have done a whole hour on Don Mattingly, a whole hour on Reggie Jackson. What is so unique, again, with Red Sox and Yankee people, not just players, but just you could say George, you can say Mookie, you can say Reggie, you can say Louie, Wade. We all know who so many iconic Red Sox and Yankee people are just from the uh, first name. Thank you to Susan Waldman, and uh, continue to get some great guests on here. We really appreciate the time. Susan Waldman joining me on Behind the Mic. Find me again on social media, Facebook. This is all powered by Anchor FM. We really appreciate them and that platform, but Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Send me an email, antonellis.michael at gmail.com. Peace and love.